This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Pentagon's top budget officials think Washington is about to turn a corner on national security. Lawmakers have come to an agreement on a spending bill with a big defense increase. But just like everybody else, the Pentagon will have to deal with inflation. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday brings us the latest. And Justin, what's in this big spending agreement for defense and uh, why is there cause for optimism in the Pentagon's case? Well, the omnibus spending agreement includes $782 billion in defense spending. That's an increase of about $42 billion or 5.6% over fiscal 2021. So a very big increase there for for defense, and the biggest increases are mostly in procurement and research and development. As usual, lawmakers added funding for ships and airplanes and other weapons above what the Biden administration had requested. And lawmakers were able to come to this agreement in no small part because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine that kind of coalesced everyone around the need to pass just national security spending. And this is the first big spending agreement that hasn't been limited by the Budget Control Act of 2011. Pentagon Comptroller Mike McCord was there at the beginning of the BCA era as he was the Pentagon Comptroller throughout the entirety of the Obama administration. He spoke at the McAleese Defense Programs Conference yesterday. He's now the Pentagon Comptroller for the Biden administration. And he described the bleak situation in Ukraine, but says it might form more of a consensus going forward around national security spending. We have a lot of new things on our plate, a lot of things to be concerned about. On the more positive side, I do think that we're about to turn a corner on national security. I think we have a possibility of greater focus, greater consensus, more robust funding, more stable funding, if, if we can seize this opportunity. Let's hope they know what's around that corner. And in the meantime, the Biden administration is about to release its 2023 request, and that should be interesting. Yeah, as soon as we get this 2022 spending bill, we're about to get a 2023 request. McCord wouldn't confirm a date, but he said the request would be out very soon. And the Biden administration still has yet to release a national security strategy as well as a national defense strategy that are both supposed to guide that, those spending requests. But McCord says the budget request will be informed by both of them. He said the, the request is effectively done, and they're just putting on the finishing touches. We are done, substantively. We are now doing the, the final assembly and starting to put the paint on and everything. But uh, we are done, and we hope that we'll be able to present that to you soon. All right, so that will be presented soon. Does anyone have any idea what to expect in it at this point? Broadly, we know what the Pentagon thinks is important. McCord says artificial intelligence continues to be a major cross-cutting priority for the Pentagon. Microelectronics have become a big issue, not just at the Pentagon, but across many different industries. For the Pentagon, they're very important for weapon systems and the like, and that's another major cross-cutting priority that McCord mentioned. But he says space might have become one of the most important points of emphasis for the Pentagon as part of this latest budget review. Space probably is, probably emerged in our, in our internal reviews as the most important foundational area for everything that we're doing, everything that we, that we need to be doing, whether it's versus China, versus Russia, anybody else. Uh, we are strong in space. I'm not saying that we're not, but we need to continue to improve in that area. And this is going to be an area, I think, where where we're going to be able to talk about some of the things we're doing to the public, uh, and there's other things we're not going to be able to talk about. But it has been, again, just a, a huge area uh, of, of focus for us. All right, some pretty interesting clues in there as to where some of those increases in that request might go. And he mentioned space, as we just heard. And the other question, then, is inflation. 
because the Budget Control Act, since 2011, we haven't had any real inflation in those 10, 11 years. We've been in space for 40, 50, 60, 75 years. We've had inflation in that period of time. What did McCord say about that? Well, he says it's a big part of what he's been focused on in building this 2023 budget. Uh, But don't expect the defense budget to go up by 7% because of inflation. He mentioned that as well. Uh, DOD actually doesn't use the consumer price index as a metric for responding to inflation. It uses the GDP deflator, which measures changes in the prices of goods and services produced in the United States. And McCord says that the GDP deflator is not tracking as high as the CPI right now. Still, the prices of goods and services have gone up. That's something the Pentagon will have to take into account. They're actually having to take into account now because they built this current budget more than two years ago when inflation just wasn't a problem. And now they're set to release another budget that won't come into play until October 1st at the very earliest. Here's how McCord described the situation. I sort of liking it to going through the supermarket and putting things in your cart. Yes, I would like one of those. I'd like two of those to be in my to be in my shopping cart when I get to the checkout line. But when we get to the checkout line, prices have changed. Everything that we put in the shopping cart was priced over a year ago at what are no longer accurate prices. Again, I, I, I spent a lot of time working working with OMB and the White House on that issue. Right. So what he's saying is that the acquisition budgets simply can't go as far if prices are going up for goods and services. Did he mention the personnel costs? I mean, there's some inflation built into that. There's a pay raise next year for troops, I think 2.7 percent. But that at least is predictable based on the number of billets they've got and, and what they get paid. What about health care costs, housing costs, transportation costs, all the people-related things that might be more subject to inflation? Did that come up? Exactly. He did a little bit. He mentioned how, you know, the pay increases, they are not necessarily a product of inflation. They are a product of just trying to stay competitive and in order to pay people and keep people. But that certainly comes into play when people are having to spend more and need to make more money. At the same time, that's not necessarily tied to the inflation issue. Goods and services, of course, are. Fuel is as well. It's a big bill for the Pentagon every year. And you can kind of see some years where fuel prices actually go down and the Pentagon can shift that money elsewhere. Well, that doesn't seem to be the case this year. So they're going to have to look at all those things as they're projecting these budgets out over many months and years in some cases and, and try to come to some sort of equilibrium in order to have the money they need. And you wonder how this will flow down to contractors, say, building platforms and systems for the Pentagon. They have their own labor issues just because they operate in the private sector labor market, which is difficult right now and inflationary in and of itself if you read the accounts. And I wonder you know, how they'll be affected. I'm just not sure McCord brought this up, but it's a good question. If you have a fixed price you've offered for a platform and your labor costs start to go crazy, you've got a problem. Yeah, it will be interesting to see how the Pentagon's acquisition directorate handles that issue. I think McCord is more focused on the big picture financials. But of course, as you mentioned, those those issues trickle down into contract pricing and the like. And I think the General Services Administration on the civilian side has said that they want to have flexible pricing as contractors are dealing with inflation. It'll be interesting to see what DOD does on their acquisition and sustainment side. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley. 
the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 
12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, And that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, And it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And 
you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.